Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And tonight's guest is Preston Dennett. Now, Preston's been on a number of times. And like I was telling him just prior to the show, um, the reason he's on a lot, number one, he writes a lot of books on this subject. I think there's this is his 20th book. And two, uh, he's a great guest. Um, there's he just a lot of people when they write a book, they don't want to give too much of it out. Well, um, Preston doesn't have that problem. He tells uh, in depth of some of these stories, which are um, quite incredible. Uh, the book he has is called Wondrous. It's 25 true UFO encounters. And there's some really bizarre ones in this one. Um, it's a book a lot of people are buying already. And uh, so check that out. That link is in the show notes, as always. And um, next week, we have Zen Benfidel. I don't know exactly how to say his last name. And he's been in touch with me since almost since I started the show. Now we're up to 460 shows at this point. And uh, speaking of shows, you can't miss one coming up if you like the this topic. In particular, the Berkshires UFO um, incident, Unsolved Mysteries, really kind of opened up the door on that as far as showing all the different witnesses and all that. Well, that also that uh, particular episode uh, made a few people come forward that um, had kept it to themselves over the years. Well, coming up on July 6th, we're going to have a five, uh, I'm sorry, a three hour special, not five, uh, starting at five o'clock p.m. Eastern time. And that's going to be right at the Warner Farm in uh, the Berkshires at Tom Warner's uh, fifth generation home where the incident actually happened to him when he was, uh, uh, you know, a, a child, I think nine years older around that age. So we're going to be doing it right there. Hopefully nothing. We won't get abducted while we're doing it. Yeah. Or something like that will happen. But we're going to be doing it right on location. If the weather's fine, we're going to be outdoors around a campfire. I know it's going to be light, but we're still going to be. Uh, around that. Um, we're going to have some amazing people there. Um, I can't really announce the names yet because uh, one person in particular um, may or may not come. If she's feeling well, she will come. And so it's going to be a great one. When we have someone flying up from the South that has never talked about it before, we have two people that have never talked about it before that have decided to come forward since the Unsolved Mystery episode came out. So That'll be July 6th. Don't miss it. Again, we'll be on location right in the Berkshires, right where it happened. So our guest tonight, Preston Dennett. Again, now this, I believe it's his 20th book. It's always great having him on. Before I bring him on, though, I want to talk about quickly about um, the blog. It's the Aguilera uh, UFO in Puerto Rico that uh, uh, Robert Powell and so many people on the SCU had done some great research on. That's the blog this this week. And uh, we are ready to go. I'm going to add our guest right now. Preston, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Uh, Preston, you've been on, I think this is probably your fifth time uh, you've been on the show. And uh, you're always uh, fun to have on. And, and you keep the show really interesting. Can you tell, the though, there, I know you started your, your UFO interest back in 1986. But there are some people that are just not familiar with it. Um, with you, because as I mentioned, almost every show, every week we have new listeners. I get a lot of email from people that are just starting to pay attention to this uh, topic because it's in the news so much. So if you would, please uh, give your background and uh, what got you interested in the topic to begin with. 
Yeah, yeah, that's awesome to see more and more people getting interested in this subject. Uh, I hated it. I was not interested in UFOs at all. I did not want to hear about it. Uh, I was a pretty young guy, 1986. I was 21 years old. I remember it vividly the day it happened, November 17, I think it was. I was watching the news with the family, and a report came out about a sighting over Alaska. It's now a very famous case, JAL Airlines, uh, two giant walnut-shaped UFOs paced Captain Kenju Chiroshi's aircraft for many miles. It was on their onboard radar. It's a great case. Uh, but on the news report, they just kind of joked about it, uh, laughed nervously, uh, said a few kind of ridiculing comments, and moved on. But I remembered my brother had said he'd seen a UFO some years earlier, seven or eight years before this. So I went up to Mark, my brother, and said, hey, Mark, tell me about that UFO you said you saw. Uh, and he told me this incredible story about how he and his two friends chased this metallic craft, colored lights, little dome on top, the whole deal, uh, for several miles. Other people were watching it too. He's like, you don't believe me? You know, call my friends, Phil and Greg. I ended up calling both of them. And uh, this kind of started the snowball rolling. Found out my sister-in-law had had a sighting. Later had a face-to-face -face encounter with gray ETs. Another sister-in-law had encounters. I had several friends who had really close-up encounters. Encounters. One had missing time. Uh, actually, two. Now that I think of it, uh, and I brought it up at work. <laughs> Big mistake. Uh, Diane, someone I'd worked with for years and years, starts telling me about this amazing sighting she had with her whole family. This star-like object darting around, uh, which was up in the San Bernardino Mountains, Southern California. And they ended up having more encounters at their home in Reseda. And her daughter started being visited by gray ETs. And so Diane's telling this story and in walks Dorothy. And she's like, oh, UFOs. One followed us home from the library. Me, my mom, and my best friend. And she's like, Preston, it's so weird. We live five minutes from the library. We left at 9 o'clock right when the library closed. And uh, it followed us home the whole way, darted off. And when we looked at the clock, it was 10.15. I have no idea what happened at the time. It only takes us five minutes to get home. So she had missing time. And yeah, that's how it kind of all started. I was not a happy camper, I can tell you that. And what what did you do? You know, what was your first action at that point as far as looking in, into it, trying to figure it out? Uh, I went to bookstores in the library. I'm like, I'm going to disprove these guys. It's clearly swamp gas. I kind of knew they weren't lying. It was clear they weren't misperceiving. So I was a little bit between a rock and a hard place. But did you uh, try to get like more information from them? You know, just trying to, uh, you know. Not, not initially. No. Uh -huh. No, I was, this wasn't easy for me. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I could not wrap my head around the idea that aliens were here. I assumed the stars were too far away. I assumed that UFOs were seen by uneducated people by one person at a time. Almost every single person I talked to had, pretty much everyone, had witnesses with them. In fact, they all did. Every single one of these people had other people with them. And uh, yeah, I just, I was ready to disprove it and I couldn't. I was shocked instead to find out that this was a subject taken very seriously for decades. There was mountains of evidence. There was a cover-up that shocked me. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it took me 
a year or two to really take this in a way that I mean, I'm still struggling with it, to be honest. Um, I just cannot let the subject go. Well, okay. Um, so let's let's talk about your your book on that you just wrote and the title of it. And how did you choose these actually? These twenty five uh, separate cases. Yeah, well, I'm super excited about this book because these are all my own cases. These are cases that no one's heard before. They're unpublished till now. And uh, some of these are cases I've wanted to include for quite a while. Uh, What I did for this book is I wanted to choose cases that I think have something to contribute to our understanding of this phenomena. Uh, Cases that are more extensive than just a simple sighting. Uh, Cases with a lot of credibility. Uh, multiple witnesses, good witnesses, uh, and a wide variety. I wanted to include, you know, not just one type of encounter. So I've got some really interesting sightings with telepathic contact. I've got a few interesting landing cases. I love landings because there's no chance of misperception when you're like right up next to one of these things. Uh, also some whistleblower accounts, some government whistleblower accounts a few that I've sat on for a while. I just didn't have room in some of my other books. Uh, My favorite, of course, are cases of face-to-face contact or people who are taken on board. I think we've got a a lot of pay dirt in those types of cases. And uh, what else? Oh, yeah, one really interesting USO account, Unidentified Submersible Object, because I've done a lot of research into that, wrote a whole book on that, and uh, continue to get cases in this one case. Wow. It's just bizarre and unique. I've never heard anything quite like it. And so these are these are great because these are all like apparently these are going to be first time heard cases, basically, right? Is that what you're basically saying? Yep, yep. I mean, there a few of them did report to a website here or there. Like one lady did report her case to Mufon, uh, but yeah, these are all unpublished. Uh, never appeared in a magazine or anything or book. So, yeah, I, I'm well, confident that no one's heard of any of these stories. Well, let's hear let's uh let's hear uh about starting out if you wouldn't mind. Let's hear about that USO uh case. Those always intrigue me. Yeah, yeah, here let me get the date for you cuz uh so many cases it's hard for me to keep them straight. But this one love this case. I it has three witnesses. I talked to two of them. Joy Williams and her husband Tom are the main witnesses. There's a third witness. And this took place in August of 1997. Uh, They went out to dinner at their friend's house. She invited them over to her house for dinner. And her house, well, both of their houses, but her house overlooks the Monterey Bay. This is a really beautiful area on the coast of central California. Monterey Bay is really, really deep, by the way. That might be a factor here. At any rate, they enjoyed the dinner. Uh, and that, you know, after dinner, Joy decided to go out on the deck to just look at the view. It's a really beautiful view of the bay. Uh, the water's about a quarter mile away. And they're high on a hill, and she's looking down and sees this glow in the water, this bright yellow, kind of yellow-green glow. And lo and behold, it's getting brighter and brighter in this object comes emerging out of the water. 
And she can see it clearly. It's covered in kelp, seaweed, kind of just streaming off the sides of it. The water is streaming off the sides and comes up out of the water 50, 100 feet or so. It's clearly pretty large because uh, at a quarter of a mile away, as you can see, it's a sizable object. And uh, it's just hovering there. She calls out her husband, Tom, her friend, and uh, they all see it. She's a military brat, by the way. She knows her aircraft pretty well. Has never seen anything like this. Never had a UFO sighting before this. None of them have. And uh, they have a telescope on the deck. So they immediately go to the telescope and look at this thing through the telescope. They can see it has portholes around the whole circumference. Large wow. kind of yeah, oval portholes. Uh, with alternating, I think it was yellow and red, yellow and green. Uh, and, you know, they're pretty far away. They didn't hear any noise. Uh, so they couldn't really say whether or not this thing was making noise. Uh, but as they watch it, this thing starts to meander along the coastline, heading, making a beeline, really, for the Moss Landing uh, coal power plant. This is located right on the shoreline there. And it has two really tall, 200-foot tall smokestacks right next to each other. And this thing goes straight for these smokestacks and parks right alongside the top of one of the smokestacks and mm. just stays there. Uh, so they're freaking out. Uh, the host was really upset, uh, but they were all sort of freaking out about this. They all felt like it was watching them, that it knew they were observing it. That made him a little nervous. And here's where it just went from strange to truly bizarre. And I've never heard of anything like this. I'm not sure what to make of it. Because I do have cases, and I know of many cases where UFOs have hovered over power plants, you know, nuclear power stations, uh, dams, electrical power stations. So that's not unusual. And that, that's exactly what was happening here. But this, this thing starts to emit what I can only call an arm or a sort of, yeah, an arm, I guess, a metallic arm out the far side, which sweeps over the craft itself and into the very top of the smokestack. Wow. <laughs> very strange. Yeah, and it has a pair of... Like a like a claw or pincers, <laughs> and she can tell you know she knows how big this smokestack is, so she estimates that this craft is anywhere between fifteen and hundred feet wide, and the pincers themselves have to be at least twenty feet long. So this is per big, <laughs> and it starts digging into the top of the smokestack. Very strange. I don't know <laughs> if it's put it right. I mean, just bizarre. Well, you know, they have they have a lot of them have these like filters and things. I'm not sure exactly what, but you know that like some of the the smoke is like treated through filters. Um and I don't know where they're located in the chimneys, but I'm wondering if they're at the top. Do you know what type of was this an oil or coal fired plant? Yeah, Do you know? Yeah, it was coal. Yeah. Coal. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if it was placing something in there. Because there are cases, I mean, that happened at the Morenci uh, copper smelting plant. A UFO hovered right over one of the smokestacks and dropped a little probe right into it. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't see that, but it was doing something. 
I kind of speculate that maybe it was measuring the levels of pollution because that's something a lot of contactees get, you know, messages about. Like, why are you polluting your planet? Why are you using fossil fuels? Yeah. This type of thing. Yeah. So, so maybe it was investigating that. Uh, wow. I mean, clearly it well, was. Well, that's a fascinating one. Yeah, they called the police while it was there. <laughs> they called the police, and the policeman was very friendly at first until it became clear to him that this was a UFO report. And then he became hostile. <laughs> uh, yeah, he did not want to hear it. He says, oh, you're just looking at a fishing boat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that angered them both. We're like, it's in the sky. <laughs> it's not a boat. It's now, what about, there. what about the plant? Um, was there anyone that reported seeing anything at the plant or did they try to reach someone at the plant to talk to them when it was going on? And can you remind me how long did it stay there? Uh, it stayed there anywhere between 10 to 20 minutes and it took, wow. you know, a good 15 minutes to get there. So this is a fairly prolonged sighting hmm. and uh, it stayed there long enough for them to call the police. This is something a lot of people should have seen. Uh, but right. they called the radio station. They did not call the, the power plant, but they did call the radio station afterwards and uh, asked if there were any reports. The radio host denied it. Uh, but that doesn't surprise me. Most people do not report their sighting. This is the, the one case that she did report it to MUFON, uh, did submit a, a written report. And I did some, you know, it stayed there for like 20 minutes and winked out. It did not see it move away. It didn't fade away. Just blink and it's gone. So maybe it darted off. You know, they, these things can move quickly. Yeah. Or maybe it turned invisible because, you know, I do have reports where some people are seeing a UFO and other people in the area aren't seeing it. And they should be able to. So they can kind of show themselves to who they want to. Uh, maybe this was an intentional, you know, kind of display. Because uh, that does happen. I don't know. But I did some digging and I found something really interesting. Uh, this was not the first sighting there. And it wasn't the last either. Really? At the, same, at the same power plant? Yep. Yep. I think the most interesting other sighting occurred some years later. Uh, not not long after that, a couple of years. And it was by a security officer who was patrolling that area. And he saw this, he described it as an orb, a white orb. But again, it was hovering directly over the power plant. He saw it twice over a period of hours on, that, on one evening. Uh, but I found two other reports as well. Um, so yeah, Moss Power Plant <laughs> is being targeted by UFOs. I think they're... I don't know, uh, keeping tabs of our technology, monitoring pollution, something along these lines. I can only speculate, but p power plant visitations is definitely a thing, but never heard right. anything where they're like digging into it with this giant claw. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That really makes you wonder if they were taking samples and if so, why, um, you, you know, could have to do with, um, uh, you know, pollution, the amounts of pollution. It, and, you know, if you want to speculate, you could also speculate, well, this could be, um, you know, a time travel thing, testing, you know, what we're doing at a certain time or whatever, or um, the way it blinked off like that, you know, you, you'd almost wonder if it was, if there was the dimension thing that people talk about, 
but then why would they be in the water if that's the case? You know, I mean, yeah, they clearly had an agenda. I mean, that was their plan. And I talked about this with Michael Schratt. Yeah. Another, you know, fairly prominent researcher who's done a lot of research into sh the shapes of UFOs and stuff. And right. he's like, he, he agreed with me. He's like, I've never heard anything like this at all. He, ca he called it one of the most unusual uh, things he's heard. And I agree with them. It's just, it's that arm that really gets me. I'm like, what the heck? And why did it come out the far side? You know, and come now, over the object. Since they had all this time, were they be were they able? And this is 1997. I realized that when you know the cell phone technology didn't really have, you know, the camera capabilities like it does. But um, did and did they have access to either a video camera or a camera, or and did they try to take pictures? No, to both questions. Did not take pictures. Did not have a camera handy. Hmm. Uh, and following the incident, uh, one of the witnesses the host where they had dinner refused to discuss it. She did not want to talk about it ever again. It really upset her. Uh, I think it kind of shifted her worldview quite a bit and it took, you know, so she's now deceased, unfortunately. Uh, so I couldn't talk to her, but it clearly shifted her worldview to a point that she was not happy talking about it. And yeah, yeah. No photos, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. You know, you wonder if that would happen today you would think someone would be able to capture a really good video of it. You know, and I realize a quarter of a mile is very far away, but it sounds to me like when it went over to the power plant where um, they could have been able to film something or taken some pictures if they had that availability. Yeah. It's funny. I've and, talked to people. Who had, what about, yeah. I've talked to people who have had cameras ready and didn't think of them or tried to take a picture and just, for one, whatever reason, weren't able to do it, or the camera actually fails. And I had one case on Catalina Island. There were 12 people there, and four of them had cameras, and every single camera failed. So, yeah. did, their, so did their flashlights and their watches, too. <laughs> so, Yeah, no, you hear that a lot. Like, the batteries will die, things like that, suddenly, which is, uh, re which is really bizarre. You know, and, and I, I think back of when, when I had my sighting I don't know if I had my phone beside me, if I would have even thought of taking a picture, you know, I was, I was just so engulfed in what I was seeing. Like, what am I looking at? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I, so I had the same I experience. I went out looking for UFO. Well, this lady, a contactee took me on an appointment to see a UFO. I wasn't really expecting one, even though she, she kind of had showed me one earlier, but we went out to this location and this giant UFO showed up. It was right next to us. I mean, 50 feet away. The most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I was covered with golden lights and had a camera around my neck. Did not take a picture. <laughs> I, I didn't think of it. It was just so shocking when you see this that close. And it was a brief sighting too. So please give me credit for that. It was like 20, 30 seconds. Uh, and, yeah. And, um, did you try to go back to this place? I mean, is this, she, she, when, how did this happen? I want to know how this happened. Did she tell you that she had sightings in a particular place quite often come along with me? Is that what happened? No, this is actually a really interesting, interesting story. I had interviewed her about her, you know, onboard experiences, her face-to-face -face encounters. 
and they were wild. I mean, this was one of the most extensive cases I had had up to that time, complete with hybrid babies. And like she was being pulled up into a craft once, woke up and saw the greys. They were very surprised that she woke up and she says to them, put me back right now. They were so surprised they did. Another time she woke up, they were surrounding her bed and she lashed out and kicked one in the neck and it snapped and it fell down and she thinks she may have actually killed it. She's not sure. Feels really bad about it, but uh, they, that stopped that whole experience. So she's telling me all this. I, you know, I did a recorded interview and I'm in my condo. This is mid 1990s, 94. And uh, in my condo in Canoga Park late at night, transcribing the interview. And I'm like, I wonder if Wendy, I'll call her Wendy, is for real. I, I mean, I know she is. I, she's clearly sincere. Uh, but I just couldn't wrap my head around all this. And I got this really strong, literally irresistible impulse to go onto the roof of my condo. And I couldn't stop myself. And uh, I'm like, what am I doing? I grabbed my glasses. You know, I'm slightly nearsighted. I use them for driving. And ran onto the roof of my three-story condo, which I'm not allowed to do. And I, I don't go up there. It's against the rules. You know, I'm a good boy. I don't disobey the rules. Uh, but I did that night and uh, walked onto the roof. I'm facing north thinking, what am I doing? And I wasn't up there. I'm going to say about 10, 15 seconds. It could have been 30, but it was less than a minute. Uh, and this object appears, well, a light, this giant glowing kind of fiery orange orb right across the street. Could have been maybe, I don't know, 100, 200 feet away, but 10 feet across, maybe it was big. And this thing talks to me. <laughs> I mean, it literally gave me a message. It blew me away. I've never had anything like this. But it basically said, not in English, but in sort of just a blast of impressions. It's like, hi, it's us. We're Wendy's ETs. You don't believe? Well, watch this. Um, not Again, not in words, but just a really strong impression that was unmistakable. And it starts darting around back and forth, back and forth. I mean, not only right angles, but super acute angles, really fast. And uh, just putting on a display clearly for me to convince me that Wendy was telling the truth. And uh, yeah, it convinced me. I, ran, I, I couldn't believe it. I fell back against the wall there and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And it was, again, a brief sighting. I ran downstairs. It was too late to call her. I almost did, but. I don't think I called her that night. I called her the next day. I'm like, Wendy, you're not going to believe it. Your ETs came and they actually talked to me. She's like, wow, you know, I, I told you. I told you I was telling the truth. What, you didn't believe me? I'm like, no, no, it's not that I didn't believe you. I'm just having trouble, you know, wrapping my head around this. And, and I told her I'd really like to see a UFO. And she says, well, you just saw one. I'm like, yeah, but I wasn't ready. <laughs> well, I wasn't ready for it. She's like, okay, I'll talk to them telepathically. I'm like, you can do that? She's like, sure, I'm in telepathic contact with them. She has fully conscious experiences. And that's what she did. And she called me up like two weeks later. She says, okay, they said they'd appear. It's off the 210 freeway in Pasadena. Let's go. You ready? I'm like, yeah, let's do this. And it worked. Yeah, I brought my sister-in-law, uh, my nephew, and her. And only she and I saw it, my, my sister-in-law, Christy, and my nephew James had fallen behind on the path up to up this little mountain alongside the freeway. Uh, but wow. right when we got there, I mean, literally the second we got there, it appeared. I was I'll shocked. 
That is really something. Um, I'm going to just show you this uh, comment by Jennifer P. I'm in the oil industry and work the night shift at refineries in the U.S. And many of us see unusual lights hovering above the units we're repairing. Most of the guys don't talk about it. it scares them. Interesting. Thank you, Jennifer, for that. Yeah, that's a, ooh, just irks me. I mean, I understand it, but that people don't talk about this. That's why, I, I mean, we know MUFON, New Fork get 20 reports daily about, you know, on average. And if one, in, let's say, say it's one in 10 people reporting it. And that's, that's right. yeah, that's being generous. It's probably closer yeah. to one in 100. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. It's, it's, well, just when I went to a conference once, it, it ended up being about one in 10 when how many people sitting here right now think they saw a UFO, the show of hands, and then counted it was about 10% that reported about maybe that's only the people that go to UFO conferences. You know, maybe people out there that would never go to a UFO conference, maybe it's many more. So you're right. It could be one in, you know, 50 or one in a hundred, who knows? Yeah. I've um, asked, I always ask people, did you report it? And almost nobody, I mean, I can count on a couple of hands and feet, talk to hundreds of people and almost no one reports it. Yeah. Well, I didn't, when I had my sighting in, you know, back in 2006, I had no idea that you would report something online. First of all, I just didn't know it existed. And I called the police department because I just didn't know what to do. So, um, you know, uh, not until I started really looking into this topic, did I find out that, you know, there's MUFON and uh, New Fork and all the other, you know, places you can report. I had no idea. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, Me either. I get it. I had no idea that the subject was even real. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's funny how one little thing can change your life. Like your friend's talking about it all that time ago or you seeing something you know just this one little thing that happened to me totally changed my life you know here i am doing this show and really enjoying it and fascinated by listening to people like yourself talk about you know all these strange things that have happened and unexplainable still you know i mean i i don't know anymore 460 shows in i know probably less than I did when I started. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I still get shocked. Yeah. I'm like, like with the schoolyard UFOs, that shocked me. I knew about the Ruiz Zimbabwe case. I didn't know if there were, there was over a hundred of them. Yeah. I just did a book on dry, UFOs over drive-in theaters. Uh, oh, oh, really? And, uh, I missed that yeah. one. Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. Well, yeah. I had one case. Turns out there's over a hundred. Just saying. <laughs> Wow. I really enjoyed the uh, when we talked about the schoolyard um, encounters. That was uh, th that one. I, I, I got an awful lot of feedback and people were talking about that for a long time. That's a that is a, a really good book. A lot of people have really enjoyed that book. And people even like Shane Ryan, the Westall, you know, thought that was a very good book as well. So, yeah, nice yeah, work. you do. Awesome. Th thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. But that book, I mean, that shocked me when I found out how many cases there were. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And just a little recap, up. you know, you, when you and I have talked about it prior, you know, 
I asked, I remember asking you the question, why do you think it's children? And I remember you saying something like, uh, they're impressionable, you know, more impressionable and, you know, more open mind than as you get older and you get stuck in a mindset or whatever, it's fringe or whatever. Yep. Most of them had never even heard of the term UFOs. Right. Yeah. That's in in the Ariel School encounter in 1994. Um, I remember speaking with Selma Siddick and she said, I never heard the word UFO. I never knew anything about them. It was not like they were watching TV there or anything where they could have seen something. Yeah. It was just. Yeah, heard of situation. Half the half of those cases, a full half, are elementary uh, schools. I mean, there's junior high and high schools and a couple of colleges, but mostly elementary schools. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, all impressionable. Um, so let's talk about another case. In let's see, yeah, another case where I remember something about a school teacher in a 15 foot. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is such an amazing case. 2006, O'Fallon, Illinois. It's a pretty rural community. And I called the lady Eleanor. She says, please don't use my name. Uh, She contacted me because uh, there was an account in one of my other books about the same type of creature she saw, figure. I'm not sure I really like that term creature, but hey, this field suffers from semantic disaster. What are you going to do? Uh, but at any rate, she likes to go jogging early in the morning and uh, with her dog outside her home, O'Fallon, Illinois. So she's out there jogging one evening in 2000 or one early, early morning, 4.30 a.m. Uh, goes down her street, up another street, up a third street, and is coming up to a T intersection. And about 100 feet away, she can see... She Well, actually, her dog noticed it first. Her dog stopped, pricked its ears up, and was looking ahead. So she stopped, too, thinking, oh, it's going to be a deer, you know, a fox, a raccoon, something like that, because that often happened when they went jogging. But it wasn't. She saw what she first thought was a man on stilts (laughs) uh, walking down the center of the street. This is a pretty busy road during the day. No one's there at that hour. And... uh, it looked like he had extenders on his arms and it was this thing was just booking down the road in in 10 foot strides and walks right under the street light there this is how she knows how tall this thing was she says president was 15 feet tall and uh it was a praying mantis (laughs) it looked like a walking humanoid praying mantis bug very long long stick-like limbs short little arms kind of hooked up towards the front and uh gray in color not not completely uniform sort of mottled huge huge eyes its head was bent down and it was sweeping back and forth as if looking for something that makes me wonder what you know what's it looking for (laughs) did it drop something you know what the heck is going on here uh and this thing just is walking down the road at pretty high speed she stops watches it walk by and then you know what she does <laughs> she runs after it uh, that's mm. kind of yeah that's kind of surprised me i'm not i'd like to think you know that would be my reaction but who knows uh she ran after it with her dog who followed <laughs> and uh 
gets to the T intersection and she can see it's still walking down the very center of the road and it's moving faster than she can she is when she's jogging she doesn't want to you know sprint after it it did not appear to see her so she didn't want to call attention to herself but she followed it for a short distance not even a minute when it turned off into this cornfield uh, which was you know fully growing cornfield and it disappeared into the darkness in this cornfield and it was gone yep freaked her out she says it didn't really scare her so much i asked her did you go jogging the next day <laughs> she's like yeah of course i did i'm like oh okay you know just curious uh I asked her well what why do you think it was there you know what is there anything in this cornfield anything in this area at all that might attract a 15 foot tall praying mantis she's like not that i can think of you know it's a very rural area lots of farms uh fields of you know corn wheat and stuff uh a school is nearby uh but she said there is one thing and when she said this i'm like ooh, this could be something important she says that she lives six miles away you know as the crow flies from scott air force base and when she said scott i immediately thought of that encounter uh, which, which occurred in that area scott air force base uh, in the year 2000 i think it was where a bunch of you may remember a bunch of police officers saw it in different counties and they basically tracked yes. it yeah halfway yep. across the state went right. right by right by scott air force base which they denied by the way uh oh. but that i thought was kind of interesting and she thought perhaps that might have something to do with it i do know you air force bases attract ufos so so maybe um, she did some digging herself did find another encounter about 40 miles away involving a gentleman who was out late at night saw a praying mantis crossing the road in front of him it was on all fours is how he described it um so he couldn't really tell how tall it was 15 foot or whatever i usually hear like nine feet tall thereabouts eight six feet um only once have i heard anyone describe 15 foot tall and that was from a great witness a navy medic kevin cammon when he told me 15 foot tall i'm like are you sure he's like listen i was right up next to this thing it touched him it grabbed his shoulder and he said it was twice more than twice his height he's almost six feet said it was like looking up at a basketball you know board a hoop um it was gigantic and she's sure it was 15 feet tall because she could measure it against the street light she went went there the next day and looked at it uh, when, and, when you get um such a bizarre story like that how do you uh, how do you vet a story when there's you know when it's one witness that's a that's a tough one i know this is a, a school teacher someone you think would be a credible person to begin with but i mean that's that's such a bizarre story i mean is it difficult for you to you know interview someone like that and 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 take their word for such a bizarre wacky story i, I don't know exactly what i'm trying to say but yeah no i get it um, yeah. i get i get a lot of people contacting me with crazy stories and uh what I often do is we'll ask them to give me a written account, which she did. Um, talk to them audibly. Uh, 
you know, do a sort of informal interview initially, and then a formal interview, see if their story changes, uh, get, you know, uh, not corroborating witnesses, but uh, what's the word I'm looking for? People who can vouch for her integrity. Mm -hmm. um, she yeah. told nobody, she told only her immediate family. She insisted upon anonymity. She wasn't looking for any attention at all. She was very nervous about, you know, that being exposed. Uh, these there's all these little things you kind of look for. She was pretty emotional about it, uh, and the details she described um, are things that I've heard from other witnesses who've talked about this. They talk about how really thin and stick-like the limbs are, the way that front arms are hooked in front of each other like a sort of dog begging. Yeah, um, the gigantic size of the eyes, uh, the way it moves in kind of a twitchy manner. There's little details that sort of speak towards their credibility. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, without physical evidence, you can't really prove these cases. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that. That's such a bizarre one in particular. You know, something that that tall and walking down the street. I mean, it seems like something you'd just be afraid that it would just reach down and, you know, bite you in half something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I asked her more, you know, cause off, often when someone sees something that close, um, I feel like the ETs are showing themselves to that person or, um, it's like usually a part of a, a, a what would I call it? A conglomeration or a complex of greater, more encounters. I mean, it's a continuum. And, and she gave me the impression, impression at first that it was a one-off, you know, this single, a singular event. But I'm like talking to her. I'm like, okay, can, you know, do I have to ask you a few more questions? And uh, she was absolutely open to it. And uh, I asked her about her childhood. And I'm like, did you have anything strange happen to you when you were a child? Anything you would consider unexplained? very open-ended, you know, I don't say, ah, oh, were you visited by aliens? You know, I just want to know anything that you couldn't explain. And she said, well, yeah, actually, funny you mentioned that. And uh, as she started to talk, I'm like, oh, here we go again. She started talking about how very short, sort of uh, dark, short figures would enter her room in the wee hours of the morning, late, late, late at night, and surround her bed she said it was very scary. It happened over and over again. She'd scream, call for her parents. They'd come running in. Nothing, of course, would be there. But it happened over and over again so many times that her parents became angry with her, told her to stop making stories. You're having nightmares. Don't wake us up anymore, which breaks my heart because these kids, I mean, I hear this all the time. Children are pretty much on their own often when dealing with these um first contact situations and uh, she had an experience where she woke up once and she wasn't in her bedroom this is still when she's a little girl four five six years old she was in a rounded room on a table it was metallic she looks to her right she uh, sees metallic instruments she says it was very felt like she was in a doctor's office couldn't see what these beings looked like because they were just sort of silhouettes other than that they were sh very short and moving about quite quickly. Um, and little details that I've heard many times. Uh, 
And uh, so, yeah, I think, I mean, she shows all the markers of being an abductee. She had later sightings. And here's a really strange aspect to her case. Twice, she saw what I can only guess is a hybrid being uh, in, in a public place. Like once at a, I believe it was a Sam's Club, uh, you know, a, what do you call it? A de- not a department store, but a- along those lines, like Target. And uh, didn't want to stare, but finally turns around and looks at this figure, and it's bald. It's got huge, dark eyes, little spriggles of hair is how she's described it. Big head, was looking at her, and she quickly looks away and looks back, and it's gone. Gone in, in a way that should not have been possible. I mean, it moved away that quickly or just disappeared. But, yeah, that was interesting because I have heard of this before, people seeing weird figures in places, public places where they should not be. Very Mm. strange. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, question up, I'm putting this up. Is this something you know about? Can you expand on the latest video about the new Maelstrom base UFO witness? Do you know anything about that in particular? Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the chapters in the book. Uh, Oh, it is. Pardon me. Okay. Yeah. 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 So well, yeah. A, if you would, sure. <laughs> a good segue. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. This this shocked me actually when this guy Mel Hansen is his name contacted me. I had actually reached out to a couple of researchers and radio stations and got the runaround, uh, which surprised me. Uh, but found me. I'm really glad he did. I'm sure you've heard of the Malmstrom incident. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, 1967. Malmstrom Is Air that Force the one Base. with uh, Robert Salas? Exactly. Yeah. He was the first whistleblower to reveal that UFOs hovered over Malmstrom. Uh, this was in uh, March of 1967, late at night, and shut down almost 20 of the ICBM nuclear missiles. Yeah. Boom, 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 yeah. boom. Shut them down. And uh, he located other witnesses, eventually put out a, you know, went public in 94, put out a book in 2005. And Mel Hansen, the guy I talked to, his daughter was watching TV in 2015 and saw a report on this case on the Discovery Channel and immediately called her dad because he had told her his story of his participation in this incident. She's like, Dad, Dad, your, your story is on TV. He's like, wow, wow, I guess I can talk about it. And so he searched for a researcher, found me, and told me this incredible story. Uh, he, he was, let's see, he was 77 years old in 2015. He was really eager to get his story told. And uh, told me how he was, I think, 29 years old at the time of, at Malmstrom and was actually at one of the missile sites, uh, which is pretty rural. I mean, it's right off the edge, the outskirts of Malmstrom base itself out in the, what we would, I mean, pretty much wilderness area. And uh, they were just doing routine maintenance, he and his crew. And uh, he said it was a really eerie night, very quiet. Uh, wasn't a lot of animal sounds. It was unusual. And suddenly this dark shape approaches overhead. And he can't really see it. It's got no lights on it. It's just blocking out the stars, this huge sort of roundish shape. And it's fairly low. He can't tell how low exactly, but it's clearly very low and very large. 
and stops right over the actual missile site. And it's totally silent. Um, and he's just looking up at it. The security guys he was with immediately called the base and said, we got something here over the missile. And uh, they're like, okay, we'll send out a Jeep. You know, we'll send out a crew. It's going to take us an hour, but we'll, we're on our way. And stay in the Jeep. Do not go outside. That's what they told Mel. Uh, so he's just watching this thing from the Jeep for a long time. Finally, he, you know, curiosity gets the best of him. He gets outside and looks at this thing, at which point the missile shuts down. And uh, at this point... You know, there's fail-safes to, to make it go back online. And the fail-safe worked. It went back onto the diesel power generator and went back online. And it was moments later, actually right after he got out, that it failed again and went on battery power and went online again and uh, then failed again the third time. And this time there was no other fail-safe. It was shut down for good. And uh, at some point, the security team arrived and ordered them to go back to the base. And uh, he was given a briefing the next day to not talk about this to anyone or you will lose your job. And they did, in fact, ship him off back to Hill Air Force Base in Utah. But yeah, an amazing case. He absolutely verified what Robert Salas uh, initially, you know, he was the first whistleblower. There's now several witnesses who have come forward. And uh, yeah, I was just amazed to hear his story. Really something. Um, you know, that when those, I can't remember, would you say 20 some odd warheads went down? The most incredible part of that whole thing is they're all independent from each other. In other words, there's nothing that would could be shut down as a unit in any type of way. They all exactly yeah. independent. Yeah, and, and they're and they're quite distant from each other. And you know there was an Air Force investigation and a and a cover up, uh, but now researchers have located documents verifying that the missiles were shut down. Uh, but the Air Force scrubbed or the yeah they scrubbed any mention of UFOs out of these documents. They're still denying it happened, uh, but it's not unique. I mean, this happened in South Dakota. This happened in Russia. I mean, look at Rendlesham. That's where we stored nuclear, anything nuclear. These guys are on it. This is clearly, I mean, in my mind, I'm speculating, obviously, but this is clearly a warning or a message. Like, what are you doing uh, with nuclear weapons? This is the number one message, or certainly one of the most common messages given to contactees. People are taken on board over and over and over again, are told, what are you doing with these nuclear weapons? Are you crazy? You're going to kill yourselves. You're damaging areas that you aren't even aware of in other dimensions. Uh, so, yeah, this is a big, big thing for the ETs. They're very concerned, clearly. I've talked about a number of times on this show where before I was really looking into this topic very seriously at all, I had an insurance agent in the 1990s, somewhere, I want to say, in the beginning of the 1990s, and he told me that he uh, was in the Special Forces Navy that in the Navy that investigated UFOs in Vietnam. I remember him telling me that it kind of blew my mind. But one of the things he said is they're whatever they are, they're very, very interested in our nuclear 
weapons and power anywhere. You know, he told me that at the same time. Yeah, I've, I've got other cases like that. Dr. Gary Wagoner was a Navy officer on the USS Long Beach, guided nuclear-powered missile cruiser. They had an encounter. Talked to Ray Sachs, an electrician's mate on the USS Klamagar, which in 1971 was carrying nuclear-tipped torpedoes. They had a USO come right up alongside their submarine. I mean, right alongside it. This is not something other submarines would ever do. Uh, and did not appear in sonar, but um, he Ray saw it. So did the commander, the second in command, the other watch officer, and all the high-ranking officers came up on deck. The submarine was you know, on the surface. And they saw it too. It paced their submarine for 15 minutes. These things are watching over anything nuclear. The Indian Point Nuclear Power Station in upstate New York, that was visited. And one other case I'd just love to mention is the Carnes City uranium mine. I did a study of UFOs hovering over mines or landing even or affecting any kind of mines, iron mines, you know, copper mines, you name it. But Carnes City had a uranium mine and a UFO hovered right over it, sent down beams of light, really affected the workers there. Some of them were weeping. They were so shocked by what they were seeing. And when they finally dug down to this uh, uranium deposit, it was completely depleted, turned just chalk white. So another clear message. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Really, really fascinating. Yeah, that um, there. I know uh, Robert Hastings does a lot of work on that. And, you know, eventually he's going to be dropping out. And I hope someone picks up the torch and keeps moving ahead with uh, doing those investigations on, on that whole thing. We are going to go into break and uh, it's about, it's a three and a half minute break. And for those of you over at KGRA radio, you will hear uh, commercials over there and everywhere else. Um, we are going to play a clip that I did with uh, Stanton Friedman. This happened right after the New York times um, article back in 2007, 2017 came out. It was the week after. So here's just a little clip. And remember at KGRA Radio, we'll be right back right after these messages. Why would aliens come here? It's not a game. We have a long history on this planet of beings from one place, one country, uh, giving a hard time to beings from another country. And so we, we see that all the time. We have aliens coming here who you expect them to you know, land on a White House lawn, they have, this is the first time uh, in, in recent history, as far as we know, that we've been in a real position to say, uh, if we want to go to the stars, we can. And turn that around. What do you think the aliens think about that? Hmm they would be concerned as all get out about us. Our track record is terrible. We we keep forgetting that. You know, we're nice guys. Everybody knows that. Well, we're not. <laughs> well, we have no way to tell whether they're nice guys like us either. You know? They haven't attacked us yet, though. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying we know what the future holds, whether they're going to give us another year and say, oh, we've given them enough time, forget about it, wipe it out. <laughs> Uh, we don't know, but you can make a case 
that if you have a sufficiently advanced civilization that it knows some history about its own beings in the neighborhood, that they've decided that getting along is better than throwing H-bombs at each other, don't you think? Hmm. Right. At some point, you've got to make that decision. Because if you don't, we are going to be throwing H-bombs, and we're going to be gone. So uh, I'm a rationalist. I think the aliens are acting are going to act sensibly. And I'm particularly intrigued by the times that they have showed up near nuclear weapons testing. Right. Near nuclear installations. And it's not because I'm a nuclear physicist, but nuclear energy gives us a means to go out there and bother them. And if I were an alien, I'd be very worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as long as we were stuck on our own planet, I can see where the aliens say, ah, let the, let the kids play their silly games. But as soon as you say they've exploded 2,000 nuclear weapons, which we have, uh, suddenly the whole local neighborhood is within reach. And that's one thing that has really changed since I began work in ufology. Our concept of how many planets there are and how many uh, you know, are in the neighborhood has changed drastically. Frank Drake said not too many years ago there might be as many as 8,000 planets out there. Now we're talking 8 billion. <laughs> it's probably that a lot more. The ball game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that's the limit. Uh, at least 8 billion in our own little galaxy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So w- what I'm saying is our status, we are guaranteed. I, I can't believe we're not of concern to others in the galaxy. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Preston Dennett. And wasn't that fitting? I, I picked that clip uh, halfway through the week for this commercial um, from the interview I did in back in 2017. Uh, or, yeah, late 2017. And anyway, it just kind of dovetailed perfectly with what we were talking about when we went into break. Isn't that something? <laughs> Synchronicity. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, so... There was a, um, there, there has been, like you mentioned, so many cases. I know there was uh, also this object that was seen right over the, uh, where the exchange uh, water would come. You know how they go out sometimes like a mile out from a nuclear power plant? They have the, that water exchange out there. And there was one ho- hovering right over where the water was being exchanged. I remember hearing that particular uh, nuke plant type of uh, thing way, way back. You know, it makes you wonder about every every bit of it, you know? Um, yeah, they're keeping tra- tra- tabs of our technology for sure, at the yeah. very least. Yeah. And, you know, um, the nuclear waste is the worst part of the nuclear power. I mean, that that's something that has to be guarded for thousands and thousands of years, up to 200,000 years, you know, for our quick little use of it in a hundred year span. Uh, it's crazy. So, you know, maybe they are, hopefully, uh, we'll get the message a little bit when it comes to that. I hope so. Yeah, the Malmstrom case isn't unique, like I said. Yeah. Now, there was a great, uh, there was another uh, great question that came up here, but I I do want to tell people, remind you, remind the people in the chat, when you want to ask a question, please put it in all caps so it stands out and I can quickly get to it. And uh, um, let's talk about another um, 
I guess I'm going to have to ask you one is I know that you said the USO case was kind of one of the most wild ones and it really is crazy. What was some of the other ones? Or let's talk about another case that you really um, looked into that was fascinating to you. Uh, that's the only USO case in that book, though I did, you know, no, no, I mean, I mean other, other cases in the book is what I meant. Yeah. That were um, fascinating. Oh gosh, there's so many uh, fascinating cases. Uh, one I find very interesting was this couple from Canada who contacted me after um, reaching a number of other researchers who they weren't happy with. They found me. It's always my first sort of duty, my my goal to help people. Uh, but that's you know what I really try to do first. Uh, mm -hmm. And if they want to share their story later, that's fine. But uh, I. I talked to a lot of people whose stories, they just don't want to go public, <laughs> uh, which is totally fine. These This couple did eventually agree to an interview. But in 2006, they had a very interesting thing happen. Uh, they had just moved to a small town in Canada. Uh, she was originally from Europe and was having a little bit of trouble with citizenship status. They had a new house that needed repairs. He was, had just settled into a new job. They were starting a business. They had a lot going on when they became pregnant. And this was kind of an unplanned pregnancy, but they were, of course, delighted, their first uh, baby. And it proceeded naturally. Everything was great. They got a midwife. They wanted to have a natural pregnancy, but they did go to the doctor, verified the pregnancy. They sent me the doctor reports and the midwife reports. And just, you know, started to hear the baby's heartbeat. I think it was like around four months or so. Like she, her belly grew, you know, blood tests confirmed this. Uh, went to the doctor, heard the baby's heartbeat several times. And uh, it was about seven months into the pregnancy that they were driving to a friend's house who lived about an hour away. And next thing they know, they got disoriented and they're arriving at their friend's house. Uh, early, like they couldn't tell how or you know what exactly happened. They arrived like 20 minutes earlier than they thought they should have. Um, they were really confused by that. Didn't know what to make of it. Never really thought anything of it that, though until they were seven and a half months along uh, in the pregnancy, and uh, they woke up one evening to this electrical storm over their house. It was like right over their house. Uh, he jumps up to shut the window because the, the lightning is just super intense. And as he's closing the window, he sees this bolt of lightning like go horizontal right in front of him, uh, right, right outside the window. Completely freaked him out. Slams the window closed, jumps back into bed. They're pretty much, uh, you know, the adrenaline's pumping because this is a big storm. And strangely, that's all they remember. They both immediately fell asleep. They thought that was kind of strange. Woke up the next morning and she's like, they both felt groggy, a little bit out of it. Uh, and she says, honey, I don't feel pregnant. And he's like, don't be ridiculous. What are you talking about? She says, look at my stomach. It's not as big. And he had to agree that, yeah, it looked like she had shrunk down a little bit. At that time, her, their baby was in a breech position, and their midwife had been giving them exercises to sort of encourage the baby to move into a better position. And they thought, maybe that's what's going on here. 
Uh, but she's like, no, honey, I don't feel pregnant. I think we should go to the doctor. They had an appointment, I think it was three or four days uh, after that, but they decided to move it up. They were gonna get an ultrasound and they went to the doctor and the doctor couldn't find a heartbeat, did tests, and she was no longer pregnant. She says, I'm really sorry, you're not pregnant. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> of course we're pregnant. I mean, <clears throat> the tests confirmed it. You've, you heard the heartbeat yourself. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, there must have been a misdiagnosis. There might be disciplinary action taken here. We have no explanation. Did you pass any tissue? Did you spontaneously abort? She's like, no, no, she denied that. She didn't. Uh, she didn't notice any marks on her body or anything other than uh, I think there was a mark on the bottom of her foot. And uh, they didn't know what to make of it, but they were not pregnant anymore. Did they do a sonogram? Um, I believe so. Yeah, they took full on tests and uh, no evidence of the baby. Uh, but she, I mean, there was still evidence that she was pregnant. Her, be her belly was still, you know, somewhat enlarged. And uh, I started asking more questions. I'm like, do you have any history of UFO encounters? Because uh, they had done a long search to figure out what, you know, what could, how could a baby just disappear? And they eventually came upon the subject of, you know, the missing fetus syndrome, which is a thing in this field, as I'm sure you know. Uh, I've talked to a number of people who've had this happen to them. It's not uncommon even. I would say most, pretty much every book I've written about people who are having major encounters, there's a case like this. Uh, but usually it's maybe three months in, never seven and a half months. Uh, but they uh, told me, yeah, we both have a history of encounters. He had seen UFOs earlier, as had his father. And she also um, is really into psychic powers and stuff. Her, her dad was a famous psychical researcher in Europe. And uh, she says that she's visited by light beings, what she calls glowing figures in her bedroom on and off throughout her life. This has happened to her. And so that was a red flag for me. This is something that, you know, I kind of expected that the, there was a history of UFO encounters here. And they were, of course, devastated. They cried and uh, we're pretty upset about it. But she actually came to grips with this pretty quickly. She said, you know, I'm actually not that upset. I just know, I know, I know, I know that my baby is still alive. I can feel it. He's in good hands. He's out there somewhere. And she, yeah, they think their baby is with the ETs now. And uh, yeah, he had a harder time with it than she did. And they had to tell both their you know, their whole family. They had built a nursery, <laughs> painted it, got cribs, you know, the whole deal. Had a baby shower and had to tell both sets of their parents and their whole family, some of who were very religious, what happened. And they didn't hold back. They said, hey, we believe aliens took our baby. And people reacted in their own different ways, uh, but they eventually came to terms with it. Yeah, it's an amazing case. Well, in a case like that, you would almost think that, oh, geez, I don't know, that medical research would be done or something if they actually had, like, physical evidence that there was a baby and then the, no baby passed at seven months. It's going to be a major thing at seven months. 
you know what I mean? So yeah. Oh, the doctors yeah. were freaked out. They're like, please come back. You know, if you ever get pregnant, you're first in line, which kind of shocked them because they were having a lot of trouble <laughs> getting medical care. And now suddenly they're like being invited back and like, please, please come back. Uh, so they thought that was significant. The doctors were very, very interested in what had happened to them. Um, did you already talk about like a government whistleblower? Is that, was that oh, one of them? Yeah, this is a really interesting case, which I have not talked about yet. I was hoping I would okay. get to mention this yeah. too, because um, this was a guy who contacted me. He was a government subcontractor uh, and often went to military bases in a civilian capacity. Uh, but in the late 1980s, he was invited to do a project at Edwards Air Force Base. And when he mentioned Edwards, my ears immediately pricked up because, I mean, if you know Edwards, they're neck deep involved in UFOs, uh, sightings, landings. I mean, the Eisenhower meeting, I'm sure you've heard of that, or the Gordon Cooper uh, landing on the runway, which was actually filmed. Lots and lots of sightings. Yes. Mm -hmm. Crash retrieval reports, reverse engineering reports. I mean, it's just neck deep. And uh, so this guy contacts me because um, he had this experience at Edwards. Uh, he had called to his employer to do some contracting work. And uh, they're walking by this, uh, what do you call it, a hangar. And the hangar has this big window open. And he could hear this loud thrumming noise, this sort of deep bass sound. This is mm, kind of woo-woo-woo sound. And turns and looks and gets a real shock because through the window here, he can see what looks like a UFO. Bright, shiny, chrome, silver object about the size of a Honda Accord is how he described it. A tiny little sports car type deal. No windows, nothing on it, no markings, but it's floating. It's floating in the air. There are cables attached to it, but it does appear to be floating. And he's super impressed. I mean, it's clearly unusual. And he turns to his employer and says, what the heck is that? And his employer glances and turns white as a sheet and jams his index finger against his lips and says, you know, shut up. <laughs> Didn't say anything, but made it clear that he, he did not want to discuss it and wouldn't. Would absolutely said, don't say a word and continued walking as fast as he could without, you know, running. And afterwards, after they were you know, out of view of this thing, uh, the guy I talked to does not want his name used. He actually contacted me from the hospital on his deathbed. This is a deathbed confession. Uh, and uh, asked him again, you know, what was that thing? And his employer absolutely refused to discuss it and would not tell him what it was for over a year until the same employer calls the guy I interviewed back and says, I have another job for you. Would you mind doing it? I can't find anybody else. We need you bad. And the guy I talked to says, nope, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm not going to do it unless you tell me what we saw in that hangar. And the guy's like, I can't tell you. He says, then I can't help you. I'm not going to do it. And so they got into what he's called a you know sort of a joking pissing contest. And after a few beers, convinced his employer to tell him what they saw. And... Uh, his employer said that what he saw was part of the, quote, failed Star Wars program, or what would become that, 
and uh, said it was not a UFO, but it was a craft that had been built by the U.S. military using reverse-engineered extraterrestrial technology and that it was a craft that used magnetics and uh, gravitational waves to travel. Um, how we described it was that there were counter-rotating magnetic fields that were directed in such a way that it caused sort of a hole or a void to be projected in the desired direction that they wanted this craft to move. So, uh, yeah, this is an interesting whistleblower case that when I found it was tied to Edwards, I'm like, wow. Uh, right. So, yeah, uh, so many things have... That's been, like you said, the the crux of so many UFO stories in particular. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. It makes um, you wonder just how many cases we haven't heard about. Oof. Exactly, right. Um, there... Uh, was a lot of people in chat were mentioning something early on in the chat about healing. And is that, is that one of those stories that's in your book, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did write a, a complete book about this, the healing power of UFOs with 300 odd cases from all over the world. Yep. This is absolutely a primary ET agenda. I'm not speculating here. This is absolutely backed up by, first-hand evidence, uh, some really good hard evidence, in fact. And I can say confidently that pretty much, I don't want, I won't say every, but most major researchers have cases like these. Seriously. Bud Hopkins had cases. I cornered him at a conference. Uh, John Mack, of course, talked about it. Uh, David Jacobs, Barbara Lamb, Yvonne Smith, uh, Edith Fiore, uh, Ray Hernandez. They all have healing cases. And uh, I get, still get cases coming my way. One case is in the book uh, involving a gentleman by the name of Dudley Delaney. He himself is a nurse and an alternative healer. This was didn't surprise me a bit. A lot of the people who are being healed are people who are doctors, they're teachers, they're social rights activists, they're animal rights activists, inventors, artists. There are people who are doing good work for humanity in some capacity. So when he told me that he was a doctor, I'm like, wow, here's this pattern again. Uh, UFOs do track families. People who get healed are often have a history of encounters. But yeah, some are, I mean, a lot of them are doctors. Jacques Vallée has a case involving a doctor. He has multiple cases, by the way. <clears throat> but this case involving Dudley Delaney, uh, he... He's recently passed away, but, uh, excuse me, <coughs> he was quite elderly when this case occurred, um, has some history of UFO encounters, not a lot. He had a weird incident as a kid. He had once had a beam of light come through his ceiling, right? I mean, through the ceiling, the solid ceiling and going around his bedroom, but he was in his late seventies when this weird incident occurred. He was suffering from prostate problems, difficulty urinating, and all of the you know, symptoms that come along with a swollen prostate. And uh, woke up to find a figure in his room. Next thing he knows, he's not in his room. He's in this other place, presumably aboard a craft, because he gave that sort of description I hear quite a bit, rounded walls, very bright. 
said this figure did not look human, had what he described as sort of a misshapen face, wasn't particularly attractive, large dark eyes. And uh, he talked to it. He's like, who, who are you? He said, my name is June. Uh, he had the impression this was a male figure and had uh, Dudley lie on his side in sort of a curled up position and proceeded to probe him, give him, you know, the classic anal probe, um, told him that he had a tumor. Um, Dudley was not aware of this. Uh, he was aware that he was having problems, but did not think there was a tumor. But this is what this figure told him and proceeded to, you know, insert this probe, at which point he could feel energy coming from it, the sort of vibration. vibration. And uh, he said it wasn't unpleasant, wasn't painful, wasn't even scary, just very, very unusual. Uh, he felt a very friendly, benevolent sort of intention from this ET, I'll call it an ET. And uh, it was actually a really brief encounter. That's pretty much all he remembers, except waking up the next morning feeling pretty good and uh, had no problems urinating after that. His problem, his prostate problems subsided uh, very quickly and uh, hmm. never returned. So uh, he believes that he was healed. Wow. That's a bizarre one. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Why would they cure an elderly man? I mean, I think yeah. it's because he's a doctor and was really into alternative healing, which is something I hear quite a bit. And oh, I, wow. I, I did some more questioning. And yeah, he had some unusual encounters as a kid. Also, his, his this might be significant. My niece is having encounters. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Huh. How about that? Um, someone, uh, this uh, gentleman or person, I can't, I, I don't understand the name. I'm sorry. Uh, do you ever look into a blood type pattern like RH, you know, negative and stuff like that for these people? Do you ever ask that question when you talk to someone when they talk about? Yeah. Yeah. And some people do know their blood type, but a lot don't. Uh, yeah. so, so they can't tell me, but I have not found a pattern there. I mean, some people are like, yeah, I'm RH negative. And they're like, you know, saying that could be a factor. And I think possibly, possibly it is, but, I have to tell you, I've talked to people from all over the world of all different races. I mean, Pacific Islanders, people who are, you know, Latino, uh, Black, uh, Asian, um, from across Europe, um, all across the U.S., people of all different races, uh, which pretty much shows that, you know, ETs don't discriminate in that way. I've, I've even asked people, you know, What's your political affiliation? <laughs> you know, how old, you know, it's evenly divided between men and women in my own files. It's age is not a factor. It's not religion. It's not political affiliation. The only factor I could find was it does track families. That is absolutely for sure. I'm going to say it over 50% of the people I've talked to have a history of encounters, not only with themselves, but with some family member, whether it's an uncle a parent, a grandparent, often their children. Uh, so that's absolutely a factor. And the only other, well, sometimes if you live in a UFO hotspot, that can increase your chances. Mm -hmm. Or if you're, or if you're out, you know, driving on a desert highway late at night, um, some people have described what I would call a one-off, um, just because I think they were in the right place at the right time. 
yeah. wrong place, however you describe it. But other than that, it's profession. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of police officers, a lot of doctors, a lot of teachers, a lot of human rights activists. It's, it's really quite astonishing how many times I hear you know, social workers and this sort of thing describing encounters. Oh, wow. Yeah, I have a friend that's a social worker that actually had an encounter when she was younger, not during, while well, you know, while she was a, a social worker. But um, yeah, one lady. Real, what's that? Real quick, one lady contacted me from Norway. She had a one-off. She had grays come into her house, flipped her around. You know, she was sleeping, flipped her around, put her in her bed like a rag doll. She said it was really scary. They weren't ex- answering any of her questions. It's quite frightening for her. These were just typical grays put an instrument against her back. She could feel this energy pulsing through her and filed out through the wall and took off. It was a one minute long encounter. And I'm like, oh, interesting. She says, you know what? They healed my back. She had suffered from a severe back injury and they healed her. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. What do you do for a living? She says, well, I'm a retired graphic artist, but please don't use my name because I'm very active in my country doing animal rights activists. I'm like, oh, there's that pattern. <laughs> there it is again. I'm telling you, this I think speaks towards their agenda. This is why I don't think they're, you know, quote, demonic or evil. One of the many reasons, actually, because they are helping people who are helping others. Um, but you know, you do hear some cases where people think there's, you know, something not so good happens uh, to them. You know, oh, yeah. encounters. Yeah. yeah, there's a bell curve for sure. I've interviewed people who are not happy campers. They wish this had never happened to them. They've suffered injuries. They've got PTSD. Uh, but more often, they come. You know, people will sort of get over the fear and uh, start having really benevolent encounters. And most people, I would say, lean towards the positive side. But no, it's not all puppies and rainbows by any means. <laughs> It's a wide universe, and some people do have negative encounters, for sure. I'm going to open the lines now. So um, for those of you that would like to actually call in and ask our guests a question, that phone number is 855-472-5483. And uh, I'd like to ask you, um, Preston, you know, going back to the, the couple that lost the seven-month-old. Um, I don't know if you followed up with them after that, but I'm just wondering if, you know, they think they encountered something that night. Have they ever tried anything like um, regression hypnotherapy? And I know that's not always the answer, but I'm just wondering, have they tried to attempt to find out what occurred that night that they didn't, they weren't aware of? Um, no, as far as I know, they haven't. I still do have their contact information and I reached out to them, you know, before the book was published as I did with all the witnesses to see if there had been any development and they did not respond. And I don't want to, you know, this is a delicate thing for witnesses. Um, Sometimes they just don't want to talk about it even after giving an interview. Uh, They were very adamant about not having their identity revealed. So I didn't, wasn't able to follow up on, because I really wanted to know if they you know, ever had kids, you know, what, what happened after all of this. Right. Uh, right. But as far as I know, just from, you know, researching sort of circuitously, they're, they're fine. They're doing well. 
I'm, I do remember following this incident. He called me back, the husband, because his wife was missing, just gone. Oh. I'm like, and he was, you know, pretty upset. He's crying. He's like, "Oh my God, I think the aliens took her." I'm like, "Calm down, calm down. Tell me what happened." He says, "Well, we had a fight, you know, and she ran out. I, you know, she's gone. She's missing." I'm like, "Oh, you had a fight? Okay, well, you know, <laughs> let's not jump to conclusions. She may be just <laughs> cooling off." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and uh, he called me back, super apologetic. He's like, "I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed." <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah she, after, she after what happened to him, I'm, or you know, seemingly happened to him. I can understand why that happened. So we have a couple of callers. We have Josh from North Carolina on the line. Josh, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? I'm really surprised I got through. Yeah. Hi. Welcome. You got a you got a question for our guest tonight? Um, yes, I I do. Um uh it, it, my first name is Josh. Hi Josh. Hi, Go on. Hello. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's Josh, by the way. Sorry. Yes, Josh. Welcome to the show. Go on and ask a question, if you would. All right. My my question is: Do you think the the famous Zimbabwe incident could that have been a message that they were really trying to send us, like a warning as to where we're you know to where we're at as humanity and the way we're treating our planet? And my other following question is, do you think that it could possibly be an off switch for us if we get to the point where there's there's no turning back? Um, yeah, thanks, Josh. I, I love these questions. The aerial case I've looked into in depth, as well as other cases like it. And yeah, that is a clear message. I think on one level, it's sort of a, hey, hello, you know, we're real. But in that case, they did land. Humanoids came out, at least three, and uh, did speak with a small group of students telepathically, each of who received messages along the same lines. Mind you, this is in 1994 in a very rural area to elementary age kids who were not what I would call environmentalists uh, or had no, no real idea of you know, the destruction we're doing to our planet. Uh, and that was what these messages said. Emily Trim, she talked about how the aliens told her using imagery that we have become far too technological, that there's a good way to use technology in a bad way, and we could do much better. Another girl was told that uh, we have to stop cutting down our forests and that if we destroy our forests, many, many people will die. Uh, there, another person was given warnings about pollution. So these were all along the same lines, warnings about our environment and how we're treating our planet, which doesn't surprise me. This turns up in other cases, certainly with contactees. This is the number one message. It's not just about nuclear proliferation, but definitely about pollution and our warlike ways and treating the environment. So absolutely, I think they were trying to send a message beyond just, you know, hello, we're real which I think is what they're doing in a lot of these schoolyard cases. But in that case, they're like absolutely giving warnings. And uh, yeah, the second part of your question was, you know, what happens if we go too far in the, the destruction of our planet? Uh, I can only speculate, uh, but uh, this has certainly been the number one message from every type of ET, starting from the 1950s onward. 
I mean, whether you're talking about the contactee era with, you know, Howard Menger and George Adamski and Truman Bethram and Orfeo Angelucci and all these sort of contactees who talked about meeting human-looking, friendly ETs or people who met greys like Betty Andreessen or Whitley Strieber or praying mantis ETs or strange humanoids of any kind. That is the number one message uh, is we are on a pathway towards an existential crisis where there could be very large loss of life. Stephen Greer talks about this. Many researchers have cases like these, most. Uh, so I think that they, at this point, are still, the ETs are acting in a very laissez-faire kind of way, um, helping as much as they can without actually taking over. It's up to us to solve our own problems. If they were to come down and, you know, lead for us that's not going to teach us how to uh, handle ourselves how to solve our own problems so i think that's why they haven't actually you know stepped in but if it gets to the point where there's a nuclear exchange or something or there's go bound to be huge loss of life on our planet it's my understanding and i've heard this from a number of contactees that they will step in and will rescue people and take them off planet. And I have some cases that speak towards this. Yeah, my last book, Onboard UFO Encounters, there was a volcanic explosion incident where people were apparently rescued by ETs uh, prior to the volcanic explosion. So yeah, I think they will step in, but I, I wouldn't count too much on it. We have to solve our own problems. Yeah, we have to learn as a species. Yeah, that's, that's really, it's really fascinating to me, and um, I I do think that they are definitely trying to, like you said, not interfere to the point where they're taking over, but they're trying to just nudge us in the right direction and hope you know that that we get our right together. But um, I personally didn't even believe in this until a few months ago, to be honest. Until it started getting on the news, and I went back to an incident I had at the Cape Fear River where my best friend and I were fishing and. We saw what we thought was a bright star in the sky. I, I assumed it was a planet. It stayed stationary for 30 minutes, and then it curved and took off one direction, didn't about face, and shot off in the blink of an eye. And I immediately um, rationalized it. When my best friend you know, asked if I saw it and described exactly what I saw, um, we never really spoke about it until we were here recently, but you know, now I'm 100% convinced that we saw something out of this world. Yeah, I think it's. I think in cases like that, they're showing themselves intentionally. I really do. Why else would it dart around? You know, stay there for a lot, such a long time and then start putting on this little show. They they yeah. want to be seen. They're trying to convince people bit by bit. Excellent. Well, hey Josh, thanks so much for the call. We got a few other people lined up. I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right. And next, uh, we have Danny calling from Ohio. Welcome to the show, Danny. Hey, how you doing, man? All right. Yeah, yeah my name is Danny. I'm from Ohio. And uh, I have a two-part question. Um, we all know, those of us who have been following this forever, know that the government knows exactly what crashed where <laughs> and who was in it and all this. <laughs> yep. kept up sometime during the end of the month when we have a report on the disclosure are you, do you think that they're gonna are they gonna roll over and play stupid still, or are they gonna you know fight, are, they, are we gonna get some back? 
And if so, if we do get some facts, how do you think everybody's going to take it? Yeah, um, I think you're right. They're going to roll over and play stupid. Um, that's what I think they're probably going to do is say, yeah, there's something there, but it could be an artifact on the radar. It could be Russian Chinese. We don't know what it is, uh, is what I think they're going to say, which I think, like you said, is completely disingenuous. They know. They've known for 70 or 80 years at least. They know exactly what this is. Anyone with an ounce of sense can look into this in five minutes and see that there's something to it and what it is. So I think they do know. I think if they're smart, they will go a little bit farther and use the A word. Call, Say it. Aliens. It's not that long of a word. It's not hard to pronounce. You can do it. Say it. They know. Um, And if they don't do that, I think there's going to be kickback from the not only the ufo community you know the experiencers and investigators uh and society at large which is really waking up to this uh, but also from government people within this sort of cover-up community uh and for that matter the ets themselves who do appear to be pushing towards disclosure i think that's one of the fact one of the driving forces behind disclosure is the ets are showing themselves in large numbers over and over again and have been for decades. So it's to the government's benefit to move a little farther than, eh, we don't know what's going on. And if they don't, they're going to they're gonna be regret it. I seriously think so. Um, I think what they might do if they're smart, if they're smart, they will show us some real photographs, show us a piece of yeah. metal. I think it might go as far as that. But the end game is showing us the craft, showing us the bodies, and anything less will not turn society into believers. People will cling to their skepticism. Um, I don't think there'll be panic, though. I think people will just take this in stride. I agree. Oh, I don't either. I think, yeah, I think, yeah, it'd be, it'd be a great new step, actually, humanity. But I think the uh, the Black Ops project and stuff like that are controlled by the elite. And that's just too powerful a weapon for them to let go of. You know what I mean? It's yep. just too powerful a weapon against us for them to let go of. I think they're going to try and hold on to the secret as strong as they can. That's my own personal belief. But yeah, but well, yeah. government better disclose. They better, or the, otherwise the ETs will. And if the government wants to remain in control of this, uh, you know. Our, the public's perception of this or have any control at all. They better do a good job with this disclosure deal. But I don't think they will. I, I don't trust them. I'm sorry. I'm jaded. They've lied for so long. <laughs> it's going it's to be to the point where it's going to be out of their hands, like it or not. But yeah, I like that. Yeah. Hey, Danny, thank you for the call. Hey, thank you so very much. All right. All right, now we have uh, Jeff uh, from Indiana. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, yeah. Hi, oh, I'm on. You're uh, live. I've been interested in this, but uh, 2012, July 3rd, in the evening, is the first time we ever had an encounter, and I, we were about 61 years old, my wife and I. And we uh, all of a sudden, we were just heading home from my daughter's meeting dinner in rural Indiana here, 
couple of these machines appeared, just kind of materialized, like they just came down out of the stratosphere right above a house on our right. We we're going about 40 miles an hour down the road. And, and then they did a 90. After they materialized, they were, and they were more or less the orange orbs about the size of a SUV that we were riding in. And they went due north, and we stopped, got out of the car, and continued to watch them go away, you know. And uh, then another one came from behind us about two minutes later, and then another one in that come right over the top of us. And wow. so there were four crafts now, two and a single and a single. And they were um, all identical, all the orange uh, ones. The fourth one went right over the top of us, and you can see there's a, they're in, engulfed in a plasma field, an orange plasma. And the fourth craft, uh, you could, it went right over us. You could see from underneath the plasma field wasn't as intense and you could see the, me the mechanics or the structure of a machine inside. And, um, the main question I have is, uh, after that happened, this was in broad daylight, by the way, too, broad daylight, about, uh, 8 30 in the evening. And, um, we continued home, you know, and told our friends, blah, 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 you know, but, and I was looking quite a bit at night, you know, to see what if I, you got an interest, you know, it really changes your life. And, um, but what I found interesting was, I know it's going to sound bizarre, but, uh, I came home one night by accident. And then just before I walked in the house, I opened it before I went in the door, I turned around and said, okay, you guys out here tonight. And one appeared Only it wasn't the orange ones. It's just the white ones. Uh, up probably about 700 feet. And I could do this over and over and over. Think about them. And one would appear. My wife could also do the same thing. And we have no recollection of being abducted. Nothing. I've never even had a dream about this. And you would think a person would dream about something that grabs you and changes your life like that. But I've never even had a dream about about a UFO uh, since that time. But what I was wondering was, they obviously had an interest in my wife and I because they would appear when we would think about them. I've even done it through the window of the house looking out at the night sky. Um, but we have absolutely no, not even bits or pieces of or any marks or waking up in the morning, you know, with any uh, any problems or anything like that. What do you think would be going on in our case? Anything at all? Or are they just, I think they're just constantly monitoring this planet 360. And I think the stratosphere or the sky is full of them, full of them 24 seven, because the odds of looking up and thinking about them and one appears. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty remote. You know, <laughs> the sky is full of them. And the second thing it tells you is that they can read their read your mind. And they, they always do the same thing. They go right over. They go about 30 degrees off the horizon in the opposite direction they started. And they just blip out. Blip. And I did that over. It became boring. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't prove anything. You know, nothing ever landed. If, you know, the only way you ever could prove it to yourself, what you're dealing with, if they landed in your yard, opened the door and said, hey, here we are, and here's what we look like, and this is what we want. But it just—I uh, got to the point where it just became—I don't even look anymore. Uh, last one I saw was last summer in broad daylight. Came right over, 
uh, that I didn't think about it then. It just happened. You can tell them they give themselves away immediately because they're moving so slow. Uh, and it was just a white light in the middle of the afternoon in broad daylight. And uh, they're moving so slow. You know, an airplane has to maintain at least, I think, 100, whatever, some miles an hour to fall out of the sky. There's no wings. There's no tail. There's no sound. That's the most remarkable and grabbing thing. There is absolutely total silence. Those ones that went over us originally, the first four that evening, were probably 50 feet over our heads. I could have hit them with a rock. And there's absolutely no sound whatsoever. If we wouldn't have looked up or been traveling, we just was standing there, you would have never known it happened. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's my story. I don't know what they want. I don't know if they do want anything with us, but that's what, if you've heard the story before, where people can see them at will. Yeah, yeah, I certainly have. And uh, when someone has a very close sighting like that, 100 feet away, 50 feet away, that is a red flag. Uh, this is something I look for when people are having perhaps missing time, which can be seamless. This People can have missing time and not know it. And for that matter, a person can have an extensive encounter and they will bring you right back moments um, with within moments. You can have a very long hour, two hour long encounter or even longer, and they will bring you back within the minute that they took you. They have this way of sort of pulling you out of the time stream. And I know how this must sound to skeptics, but this is for real. <laughs> yeah, when someone has a very close sighting, it's a definite sign that there's something going on there. And I've heard many people say exactly what you're saying. Following a really close encounter like this, they have repeated encounters, uh, telepathic contact. And uh, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, it sounds like they're doing with you. Uh, the they're contacting a lot of people. They want people to know they're real. They want people to know they're here. Uh, this is something they're really pushing forth in their agenda. I think this is sort of a prelude to open official contact so that if they show themselves to enough people that when they actually come in large numbers, land all over the world or however they're gonna do it, uh, we will be better prepared. Uh, but yeah, they are. You hit it on the net, the head. They are very telepathic, and you can't call them down. Received, I've never, we've never had any uh, recollection of any yeah, telepathic. Uh, it's not unusual to not have dreams or any scars or anything. It's not always, you know, necessary for a person. They just want you to know they're real. Uh, it's very possible you have had encounters, but it's buried in your subconscious. I wouldn't recommend hypnosis unless you're having anxieties or you're a clear-cut case of missing time. But what you might do, uh, and this is just an experiment that you might find interesting, is go out there and, and ask to see them and have them come a little closer because they will. They will come much closer. They will interact with you. Uh, this is something I've heard from many people. And that'll be a little bit more interesting than exciting. But yeah, it does sound like you're having real contact because there are sort of three factors I look for when someone describes a sighting. And that would be strange appearance, strange emotion, and sound. And uh, if, that, if all of those three factors come into play and it's a very close-up sighting, uh, that I think lends credence towards that this being something unusual. 
Well, I came to the conclusion, I, you know, we told friends and I, I talked about it. A lot of people won't talk about it. And I'm the kind of person, I had my own, my own business for 40 some years and I'm an outgoing person and I don't care if I see something, I'm going to tell people. And I said, guess what, folks? These things are real. We saw them, but we got about as good a look at them as you can in broad daylight. And I tell our friends or anybody, I talked to some police officers I know, and they've seen some things. And uh, but uh, and I've told relatives, you know, and they, they start looking in the evening because they believe me. And they go, I never see anything. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you how I, what I've come to the conclusion. The only way you're going to see them is if they want you to, because they don't have to show themselves to anybody. I said, if they decide they want to show themselves to you, and when you go out to look, you'll see them because they're there 24-7 right above you. You don't have to go out in the middle of the desert. You don't have to go to the mountaintop. They're everywhere. Well, hey, Jeff, thank you for the call, Jeff. Thank you. All right. Take care. Now we have uh, Jake uh, on the line from Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Jake. Thank you. Um, I have a question. Do you think there's any coincidence with the government rolling out the Space Force and then a few years later, the the whole UAP phenomenon? Um, I'll take it off air. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the call, Jake. Yeah, that's an interesting question, Jake. Thanks. Uh, I, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think the government, the secret government, I'll call them, has sort of painted themselves into a corner with this subject. There's been a decades-long policy of denying and lying and covering this up while at the same time it's just mounting 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 and they're getting deeper and deeper involved with it and they're at the point where they can't cover it up the cover-up has been a disaster it's like a dam you know picture a dam with one leak and then two leaks and then 10 leaks and then 100 leaks now they've got all their little fingers over these leaks and it's impossible that dam is about to collapse and it's going to be a flood of information. That's what we're seeing. So I think that's one of the reasons they are sort of trying to prepare. This is, I think, one of the driving forces behind organizing a space force. A space force is something I think that's inevitable. We started with the Navy and we've just continually moved on. I think it's part of the whole control factor too. They've really been trying to uh, I'm just, I'm just not convinced our government is acting in our best interests. So I'm concerned about this. And I'm wondering, you know, what if the Space Force is just more of the greed and control and corruption and trying to, you know, spin this phenomena uh, into a, quote, threat. And I think if you look at this objectively, I don't think it is a threat. I think this is good news for humanity. I really do. Again, I'm not saying it's all friendly by any means. But if they really wanted to take over, this was truly a threat, it would be no problem for them to do so. And we haven't seen that. I don't think but, I don't think the government is going to be able to see technology that can't be explained as anything other than a threat. I think that's where that'll hang right there, because if they can't explain how these things can do what they do, then whoever else has it would seem like a threat to the U.S. government, I think. But uh, anyway, we have John uh, from Indiana. It's our last caller for the night. John, welcome to the show. Yes, hello. Hi. I had a question for Preston. Sure. Yeah. 
Uh, I also wanted to share an experience. I thought it'd be a good time to share my close encounter of the first kind, uh, which correlated with a few uh, synchronous events. Uh, November 2nd of last year, 2020, uh, I say a stone's uh, a throw and a half away. I probably could have hit it with a baseball. Directly over my head was a giant um, chevron-shaped vehicle to where I could see the craft in between the lights. The last thing on my mind was to grab a camera, but I was able to run inside and grab another witness. We watched this thing fly over after it hung there for uh, a few moments. Uh, the physical craft we saw, I'll keep this short, turned into uh, the separate lights. I don't remember if there were three or four on each side of this V-shaped, you know, a triangle without the bottom. Uh, uh, this thing went from physical craft to these lights flying off and disconfiguring and turning to separate lights. So I thought it was interesting. The last caller said the most amazing thing was the silence, which that was amazing. But in my case, the most amazing thing was the, the, uh, nuts and bolts physical craft went, turned to light. Um, so my question was, is, is, uh, all the cases you've come across, Preston, do you know of any um, cases where they describe the occupants of these particular triangle uh, Phoenix Lights crafts? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, which I've been asked before. And no, I have not been able to sort of match the type of craft to the type of ETs. Uh, I do get mostly grays or some variation of grays. Uh, I would say human looking after that and praying mantis and then strange humanoids of all types. But uh, I can't match it to the type of craft. There's an incredible array of different types of craft. And uh, yes, and most other craft, uh, there's, there are cases out there. Uh, however, this particular one is a little uh, difficult to find info on the occupants. Yeah, and I've heard that same thing, too, that you're describing. They'll turn transparent, they'll break apart, they'll release smaller craft, uh, they'll multiply. They can do things that we would think of as interdimensional, and perhaps it is, but I am absolutely convinced that these are extraterrestrials driving solid craft, beings like us, very much like us, in fact. I didn't, uh, oh my John... John, thank you for the call. I'm going to have to cut this short. We're running out of time, and I didn't realize there was one other caller uh, waiting on hold. So, uh, But thank you for your call tonight. All right. Now we have Bonnie from Minnesota on the line. Hi. Bonnie, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Hi, Bonnie. Hey. Okay, so this is um, so we're made in talking to you. <laughs> Because uh. um, I was a kid, and it could have all been my imagination because I was like nine, and I had older, a decade older, how to meditate. So I'm in my bedroom, and these two people appeared. And um, um, I just thought that they were like time travelers because I just walked up to them and I started talking to them. Only one of them spoke with me. 
normal people die. And I thought we're scientists. And <laughs> um, anyways, I asked my name and, and he asked how old I was. And then it's like he was reading something. And I would have. All right. Um, hey, uh -huh. hey, Bonnie. Uh, Bonnie. Hi. Pardon me. I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but your your phone line, your 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 connection is breaking up, and we're right at the end of our show anyway. But I'm really sorry. Wait. I encourage I I encourage you to call back next week. All right. All right, so uh, Preston, so thank you so much uh, for for being on our show today. I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having and me. Yeah, it was fun. Just quickly, we have a minute left here. The uh, upcoming thing you're working on, you must have another book in the works. <laughs> I do. You know it. Yeah, I'm, it's going to be amazing about one lady's story who's having full-on conscious contact it's really quite incredible. She's an amazing woman. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, Preston's book is called Wondrous, and you can get that on Amazon. It's also in the show notes and will be in the text on YouTube, et cetera. Thank you so much, Preston. Uh, great as always. Hey, always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. Yeah. All right, everyone. So we'll be back next week with a Zen Benfidel. And uh, don't forget to tune in on July six we're going to be up in the berkshires and you don't want to miss that one so thank you very much everyone and remember to keep your eyes to the sky <laughs>